Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society Presents The Role of Love in Social Justice Work. This, I think, is a really special episode featuring Yusuf Bakali and Lisa Palmer in conversation with our guest host and producer, Ez Chibo. I think this is a special conversation because it's a conversation about love that brings together both the practice and the theory. What I mean by this is I think this is a really good example of Ez being able to challenge how academic theory can sometimes complicate the role of love in social justice work. We need to do better at saying what we mean when we're talking about love and recognise that how we understand love or how love becomes theorised is very much happens in practice. I think that there's a really solid conversation between Ez, Yusuf and Lisa about how important the scholarship of love is. In particular, they focus on Bell Hooks and Lisa's work on Lover's Rock. There's much about this conversation that I think that academics will be pushed on and I think that's a really good thing. I really hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did. Welcome to Surviving Society Presents The Role of Love in Social Justice Work. In these episodes, we will explore the role that love plays in social justice spaces. I brought on a handful of amazing guests that spoke to the way that love impacts the work that they do, as well as the challenges and benefits that this presents. This series has been executively produced by myself, F. Chibo. Hi everyone, welcome to our final episode of the series, The Role of Love in Social Justice Work. I am here with two very special guests. My name is Yusuf. Uh, I've been on Surviving Society before. Um, I work at the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre now, where I'm a Senior Legacy in Action Research Fellow. There's a lot of words. Um, yeah, man. And recently, most recently, one of the things I've done recently is write an article with U.S. And I think that article was around the concept of love um, in marginal settings. Thanks, Yusuf. And Lisa? So my name is Lisa. I'm Lisa Palmer. I'm the interim director of the Stephen Lawrence Research Centre. And my work has focused on looking at the, the cultural politics of, of love um, more specifically looking at Lover's Rock music. Um, but I came to looking at Lover's Rock music through uh, black feminism and black feminist thought around Lover's... No, black feminist thought about love and I applied that to Lover's Rock. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Thank you both for coming on. going to be transparent here in saying this was a very, like, oh, I want to do this episode and have, like, put it together quite quickly um so but my desire and what i want to really get out of this conversation um is the different ways that love informs the work that you're doing at the stephen lawrence center but also both of your journeys into the, the roles that you're in and that yusuf and i know we've we've worked on that chapter um and like how to think through and look at how love intersects with some of the stickier parts of our identity um, and some of the ways that like structural violence or structural oppression, what that does to love and what love looks like um, in the context of that. So I went to the inaugural lecture um, and I was genuinely blown away. Um, I was genuinely blown away at like, the level of thought um, that had gone into the event um, and also people 
showing up. It was the first time in a long time I'd felt really connected to the history. Yeah, it's just the history of the struggle around that race and identity in the UK. It's the first time I'd been at an event where I felt that. Like, I'm, I'm in a lot of spaces where I hear it and we talk about it all the time. But it's like, and something in that to me is that there was love in that space. Um, and that was, there was challenge in the space, but there was love in the space. Um, and that was actually the thing that made me think, okay, I want to have this conversation. And so, yeah, maybe if both of you could speak to that a little bit. What was the process of like doing the event and what's it been like at the centre so far? Lisa was basically the main don when it came to that. She's the interim director. She picked up kind of that leadership role at the beginning of the year. So we didn't even have that long a time to work on it. To be honest, it took a lot of thought and all of that kind of stuff. And Lisa should probably say more on it. But I, my perspective, I think things just kind of also fell into place. Like a kind of serendipity kind of happened with it as well. And I think that was partly because of the networks that the centre has built over a long period of time. You know, it's not, it didn't come from nowhere that the centre, the kind of work it's been doing over a long period of time. And that was like a reflection or an outward kind of reflection of what's happening or been happening inside the centre from before I joined it. I've only been there three years. You know what, Es, I really appreciate you saying that because I think when we planned the whole season, so we planned a whole, we planned a whole season to commemorate the 30th anniversary year of Stephen Lawrence's murder and I think if I'm honest the whole team is quite tired because having to think about the, the, and confront a period of looking at the the, um, the horrific murder of what happened to Stephen and then subsequently thinking about that his case wasn't an isolated incident that it was part of a longer context, historical context of racist murders and attacks within South East London and subsequent deaths that have happened since. It's been quite a heavy process to, <coughs> to try and process all of that. Um, the impact of all of those different forms of racism that we talk about every day, structural, institutional, interpersonal, um, street level forms and then having to think well how do we remember Stephen in a way that has meaning um, and so when we put together that program and put together that particular um, event the, the final event it was I think there, there was some serendipity but there's also been some, some lo a long process of leading up as to who we wanted to speak and we was definitely certain that we wanted to have joy in the room um, because of the nature of the work that she does and also because we wanted to really be clear about um, a kind of ethics and politics and I think going back to the question around love I think Joy kind of embodies a lot of that ethic of love within her work, joy, this is Dr Joy White I should say, I think she embodies that even without necessarily theorising it mm -hmm. in an explicit way Mm -hmm. um, I think her methodologies, her approach, her thinking really does encapsulate that sense of um, accountability, care, um, rig rigorous critique, reflexive critique mm -hmm. as well, that I think um, was important for us to have as a kind of central voice within that event. And having um, 
Imran Khan Casey, who was the the lawyer that um, represented um, Dorian Lawrence and the Lawrence family in that earlier period of Stephen's murder and even till today. You know, that is, it was immense to have him as on that platform and also to have Professor Jason Arday, who I know is a, is a very close friend of Surviving Society and a, a huge um, inspiration. And again, another academic who not only embodies a certain type of um, way of being with other academics, but also approaches his work with, I think, with also kind of ethical case. So in a sense, the serendipitous nature of the event came with having all three of them in the room mm. and having them talk through their own experiences, perspectives on kind of working in this racial justice yep. or injustice, racial injustice space. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Call it that. Yeah, that feels really, um, that really resonates with me because there's something about, and people that know me know I speak plainly about this stuff, like there's something, there's a very big difference between theorising some of these issues and living and being and that being your practice. And um, I think my experience of academia, and I can say this common academic, but my experience of academia is that there are just a lot, there's a lot of like, itchiness that's the way I'm going to put it that's the nicest way I can put it yeah it's just itchy and prickly and like very much not the way I have lived in community and so even that is interesting because um that's what I felt from the panel what I felt from and there was something that one of the things I went home really feeling really strongly about was that we do this because of love that we do this because of a love for our community. That's why we have these conversations. They're difficult conversations to have. Um, there was some stupid questions were asked that day and and Joy White particularly that dealt with that because of that, it was in love, that like you responded in love. And I was sat in the audience thinking, rah, this is, there's, and it's love of like, self that do you know what I'm going to hold myself in this way and I'm not going to get drawn out it's love of the person in that do you know what I'm not going to cuss you out or I'm not going to respond in a way that is going to shift the energy in the room I'm but there was so it was just kind of the way in which we navigate these really difficult conversations um I I really felt a lot of love in that room um and that feel it feels really important to name it here that like the how we do things and that's something I've tried to get across in the series and sort of the premise of why I even when they have these conversations is because the how we do things is as important as what we do um, and the wins are not wins if we're not doing them like how with love. In the way, yeah. How in the way. Yeah. I think that's true. I think there's a, a sense that we we cannot get I, I guess I came to a lot of the ways in which we might do the practice through theory and through thinking through particularly black feminist theories, particularly um, the work of Bell Hooks, which has been instrumental to to me as an academic and as a person. I think um, definitely through Bell Hooks' work, she made me realise it was possible to think about love in this way, Mm -hmm. that you could think about love within a a social, political um, context that was asking to really push the boundaries of what 
a transformative politics could look like and what it could and, and also in a sense that it's not it's not something that's easy to achieve and I don't think she was ever setting out to say that this is going to be a kind of easy straightforward path mm -hmm. more to the point I think it's that we are very much um, encouraged to think about it as an ethic mm. which would mean if we're thinking about it as an ethic it's about a, a, a practice it's about a mm -hmm. way of being it's about a, a way of trying to um it's, it goes beyond behavior it goes it goes it, although how we turn up is important mm -hmm. um but also how we think through a, a particular approach to doing work because as many of us know just because we may share a same political view doesn't always mean that we're all going to be practicing things in a particular way that supports that. And also, I think I would go as far as to to say that I don't know if I, I don't like assuming that I share a political view with people that I don't like. And I'm, I'm in a lot of spaces where I'm in I'm in a lot of spaces that people might vote the same or people might like say the same things and like in theory, yeah, we we are on the same page but like if the practice isn't matched with like if, it, if there is not an embodied practice of love um and i'm talking about the love the political version of love that we've spoken about that bell hooks has that taught us about that we continue to build theories around if we are not embodying that um then i don't think i don't think we're on the same page but also i think practicing love is also <clears throat> pardon me understanding that not everyone is in a place to do that all the time. And I think it's also a test for people who are maybe more in that place to understand and engage with people across those boundaries or those lines or those tension points. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the, the things that's difficult. Because like, let's be honest, like the academy isn't really set up for those politics. Overall, the academy is quite across the board, a conservative mm -hmm. institution or set of institutions that doesn't necessarily like we've talked about in the article we talked about the kind of vision of love that bell hooks gave us was an emancipatory love mm -hmm. it wasn't a conservative love in fact she was trying to throw a lot of the older ideas about forms of love that were that she viewed as harmful sort of out and offer like kind of new visions mm -hmm. didn't she have a book called yeah new visions? that's yeah. the full title of um all about love yeah. yeah and um yeah and i think that that's what she was doing so then trying to practice the kind of ideals or ideas we're talking about here also involves being able to engage across those kind of tension points or they're not i don't know if exactly their lines of difference but they are i suppose points of difference that you have to overcome and be able to engage with people across and that's difficult because it can be exhausting because if you're coming at it with your heart and other people aren't mm -hmm that can feel very demoralizing and exhausting. And I think one of the things about kind of doing that work of love or with love, and we talked about in the article is that, you know, we're not, and we quoted Lisa in that actually, where she talked about people can't come out unsullied. Mm. Like all of us here, and I'll, you know, and I'll be clear about myself that I, you know, I have, you know, ideas and aspirations to behave in those ways or conduct myself in those ways given the structure and the situation I live in and the world that I'm living in and come from and all the other things, can I say that I've done that consistently and all the time in my life? And I, I say that, no, it's not true. 
Do you know what I mean? I can say that I aspire to that. And in some situations, I've succeeded in that. But I also have to recognise, and that is also, in a way, a loving thing for myself, but also for other people to recognise that structurally, they're not always in position in such a way that either those those kind of politics can even reach them mm. and or that they can consistently, because it takes a kind of energy, I think. That's what we talked about, because Bell Hooks, one of the things I think, the tension points we found with Hooks in that article, and correct me if I'm wrong, was that she talked about the idea that, you know, forms of care or attachment that are harmful are not love. Which which we disagree with. with. Or we found difficult because... Or which I disagree with. Maybe explain then. From my perspective, so disagree is maybe too strong. Disagree is maybe too strong, but I think there's... I think I... My perspective is that love is a lot more complicated and the journey to love for me has been a lot more complicated. So if I'm going by Bell Hooks' definition as an example, my mum my mom didn't love me, and not because she didn't want to, but if I'm going by that definition, she didn't have the tools or the skill or the capacity or the resources to be able to offer me that version of love. Um, and I think it's I, I don't I don't think it would be accurate to suggest that my mum didn't love me. Well, it's, it's sort of an elitist love. So it's like you have to be totally in that place that mm. I was saying that in my life a lot of the time I haven't been or I'm not. Mm-hmm. You know, to perform love and lots of people in our communities and our spaces sometimes aren't. Mm. So then to reduce everything they have to less than love can also there's a there's a side to that which I think can be a bit frightening. And I what I think Bell Hooks was offering us was a possibility she was offering us a possibility of love that can set us free a possibility of love that can raise us and lift us and that's important you get me like i'm not saying that what she said was wrong or what she said was you know i think that it was conscious that's my i mean i can't talk to both now and i'll ever ask mm. what her politics was behind it and lisa might know better than me because she's a more of a bohook scholar than i am definitely but that was kind of my position. And actually we ended that article or that chapter, it was kind of leaning into what she was saying that yep. we need generative solutions, you know, and that's what she's given us. She has given us a politics and a, a way of thinking and performing and enacting and embodying love, which is generative. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time what we're talking about in our the way that, and I do believe that love can hurt. You know, love can take us to all of the places can take us to the darkest and most difficult places and it can carry us through the darkest and most difficult places but it can also lead us there too yeah you know I, do you know what? i was listening to the original little mermaid the the storybook as you do with no with my daughter <laughs> so me and my daughter my daughter lives in brighton i live in london and i drive her back and forth you know when she has her time with me so oftentimes we listen to audiobooks in the car and the little, little mermaid actually ends so she gets this enchantment put on her and she's so in love with this prince. She agrees to, you know, chop off her tongue and go and be with him. But she can never really explain to him truly who she is and communicating with him at the level she would hope to. And like, just being as beautiful as she was wasn't enough for someone to love her in that way, maybe, or whatever it was. But anyway, at the end of the story, her sisters come to her and give her a knife and say, the, the witch has agreed, a, you know, a bargain that if you kill the prince tonight, you strike him dead with this knife, he will save you because what happened is the prince met another woman and because he fell in love with someone else, the little mermaid was going to die because that was the conditions of the original spell. 
and like she watches him sleep and she throws the knife in the ocean and there's lots of things you could say about that like that's what this like <laughs> how can you love someone like that that didn't love you and all these kind of, but that's i think is an interesting parable for love because what happens to her is that she then dives into the ocean she becomes the foam on the sea and so she does you know sort of cease to exist in the plane that she's existing and i think that's an interesting story of love because it there's this weird mixture of higher emotions and higher behaviors along with kind of more base level and more challenging and difficult things about you know relationships patriarchy the fact that these guys are really over overly self-indulgent prints and all of these things that are going on in this story i think tell us i'm hoping that my daughter doesn't grow up and feel like that is love mm-hmm. but i also think it communicates something about how complicated and how many variations and ways in which we can frame or manage our feelings of love mm. and it's i think probably you weren't expecting me to come in here and talk about the little memory no, no, it's but, a, i think it's a re- <laughs> i think it's a really good analogy and anecdote and i think just bringing that concept into the social justice space and that thinking about um the issue of race particularly that we all work on um it's interesting because there's also the so, so i can listen to that um, analogy that you've just given about the Little Mermaid, and I can place myself in it. Um, and I think the challenge for me in terms of love and social justice work is that the love that I have for myself and my community runs so deep and is so embodied that actually some of those darker emotions that you're describing can be really present in in my in my day to day interactions. Um, and also, I think there's something which you speak to um, in one of your chapters that I love um, about the theory about the mum pain. But there's also there's that about that when I am just too tired because of the love that I have for the work that I do and the, the people that I'm doing this with, sometimes like I'm too tired to, to, to even enact this love in a way that I would like to, to, to aspire to that higher version of love that I want to be able to embody. But um, I'm too tired. Well, I think there's, I think there's a, an interesting kind of um, set of underlying questions, which is around what are the social conditions for us to love? Who create what? How do we enter into a kind of dynamic and a politic of love within the kind of social dynamics and of social dynamics of um, a kind of ongoing coloniality which shapes our very existence and our very being, a kind of ongoing politics of neoliberalism, which sort of also, in a, to an extent now, I think we've, we've been forced to embody, embody neoliberalism through a, an act of how we participate, socially participate within um, the, the, the structures that we live in. So even if we, you know, from applying for housing or um, going to sending your children to school or becoming a student, all of these processes have become neoliberalized, whether we like them or not. And I th- and so that that also shapes the conditions of how we practice love. And I think what Bell Hooks was talking about, I've I've found particularly when I look back at one of her essays in particular that I've worked with quite a lot is. Um, loving blackness and that particular essay in black looks i think she was asking questions around not just how do we love 
our community or love black people but how do we create the social conditions Mm -hmm. that enables a much more broader structure within society that enables a politics that could where black people could live and strive with actually the the idea of um knowing who we are as a complex set of human beings on the planet what would be the social conditions for our thriving and our living and what would we need to do to actually rethink who we are she starts that essay with a quote from malcolm x and um the, i can't remember the quote verbatim but what she's asked the quote is asking us to see each other with new eyes and if we're looking to see each other with new eyes really that's kind of like a decolonial project is a kind of project that says that we have to reimagine what it is to think and to see each other as um what does it mean to see one black person to within a society that hates blackness or is anti-black what does it mean to think through um moving away from a politics of anti-blackness and to kind of rethink how we not only our humanness is a given it's how do we actually go beyond the lens of what is put onto us what's projected onto us that it's part of that a dehumanizing process and that dehumanizing process is the pathology of the dominant culture the pathology of the dominant culture is the thing that we're always grappling against and I think Bell Hooks's work rather than trying to get us to think individually about how to be better loving people I think she's trying to think through what are the tools that we would need to get to that place but also to kind of do this to create a, a, a social a different social world mm. for our existence and, and that feels really deep and actually really relevant to that so you said I'm going to talk a little bit about our chapter in a moment but also I want to hear about your research as well and um, Lisa because I think there's something about for me I speak for myself in saying that there's something about figuring it out as I go so when I'm like when I when I'm asked that question that you that that Bell Hooks is posing to us that like how do we create the conditions to do love in this work I don't have there isn't a direct blueprint for this is how you do it um and actually one of my one of the biggest challenges that I have with white colleagues particularly in this world is that like often and not always and like I've I've, I've brought on um white colleagues whom I love to this very theory so it's not saying that there are they all operate in this way but I think one of my biggest challenges is that it feels like when people are trying to love me they have read a book why I'm no longer speaking about race. Let's just fit that. Something something along those lines. And then they're like, oh, and this is chapter three says I love you in this way. Um, chapter two. And again, I don't want to be I, I, I want to be real. I don't want to be like um, unfair to people, because if that's your entry point, then start somewhere. I'd rather that than not. Um, but I also I want to give space to like the challenge that that presents for me. Um, and that's again you speaking thinking about our chapter we were saying before we put the record button button on um, and we speak about it all the time like writing that chapter with you I was missing for a lot and that this, if we're going to keep it very real and very honest and very transparent for a lot of that process of and the process didn't start no, in particular ways you weren't you were present in the ways that you were holding me accountable for my writing 
were present in lots of ways and at the end like you would it over the line mm. but we talked about it earlier and the ways in which we wrote it i could imagine that in another situation mm. that you know it would have turned nasty between colleagues mm. and oh you haven't written your bit you know how it gets man like people get but because we know each other we know what's going on a little bit i don't mm-hmm. know everything what's going on choice or vice versa but we know enough to know where we're coming from the things that we've been through what the article means so we weren't in a rush like you know we had editors asking us what, like, you know and they were nice i'm not getting onto script being critical in that but you know they've got a project to complete mm-hmm. right but because we have that connection and we know each other quite, nearly 10 years now probably yeah. and um yeah man it was we were able to be at peace with it and we were able to see when the other one needed space or support and check in and do that stuff without applying pressure and all of those kind of things and basically through the writing of it we were sort of there for each other in the ways that understanding perhaps the ways in which we needed someone to be there for us as we wrote it and it was just a different experience of writing something with someone in it basically because we had that trust and um you know I think as well, part of that as well is that for a long time we were processing and thinking about what we were doing and what we were writing and working with the data and working with the ideas. Because even the whole article itself was something that had been a long time Mm -hmm. coming. For a long time, I was trying to identify a co-author that could help me write that. For a long time, I was ruminating on kind of the tension points between it. So for example, the article raises issues of domestic violence or gendered violence, male perpetrated violence. But also, you know, you know, we talked about, I had a review once for a different article I wrote. So that when you submit a journal, like uh, submit an article to a journal, you get a blind peer reviewed. And one of the uh, one of the reviews said something like, road is a black issue, a niche black issue that affects a few black communities, like black came up a lot. <laughs> and um, this perception of road as being a black thing, it does draw heavily on black Atlantic kind of you know across from the caribbean maybe even from africa but predominantly from the united states you know cultural forms but it's not a black thing exclusively right and we know lots of people on roads from all different backgrounds all different you know so that was something that i wanted to resist but also thinking about these are the assumptions people are coming to this work with we write a certain that's just completely about devious one you know one side doesn't give nuance or perspective or try to get to the heart of how men are also victims in this you get me it doesn't excuse anyone or make anyone unaccountable for their actions for being violent in any way but also that they're also victims Mm -hmm. the mum pain was a lot lot about was about these young men were completely pinned under the forms of masculinity which then work to completely delimit them and sometimes eliminate them do you understand Mm -hmm. so we had to try and tell that story so we had different things going on so we had our dynamic and our own personal struggles that are almost interconnected with the story that we're telling not almost <laughs> who yeah. are, you know and we we had things going on with the police and other organ you know in our families and other things going on around that time and um like navigating that was not easy and i don't think we could have done it without that dynamic that we had and i'm gonna name what the thing is in that dynamic as love yeah, so um, so without love I don't think I agree with you wholeheartedly I want to 
go back to very quickly something that you touched on or you said no it was actually something you said in passing so you were speaking about our process and you said you know how it goes <laughs> yeah and and I want to name how it goes because I, I don't know if yeah. everyone knows how it goes yeah so I want to name that often I think in academic spaces or when people are working on projects there is a one-upism there is a I'm trying to first door for you yeah I'm trying to first door <laughs> for you there is a like there's an completely like inaccessible like the amount and this is like I'm around a lot of academics a lot of the time that are theorizing on social justice stuff but I don't understand what you're saying I don't even understand what you're saying it's not to talk about like demandem or like young women that I've worked with in the past that are not don't have access to this language that you're using don't know what you're talking about you don't you're not representing them um in the ways that you might hoping you are um and I think there's something about one the, the level of intention that we worked with and that w- and the intention wasn't about the article it was about the level of care that we were able to give each other and that there were different periods where I'm in one place you're in a different and that figuring out how to work through that um felt really important and also along the way we had a lot of very generative conversations about it Do you know what I mean so sometimes we meet and nothing would get written Mm -hmm. but the conversation was generative both from the perspective of being able to go on with our lives but also from the perspective of having ideas and thinking it through because it's a touchy subject as well publicly you know no one wants to see people that are perpetrating something that i should say though in the data none of those men had perpetrated any violence against any of the women actually in the data set which was one of the things so they were talking kind of about their experiences but their experiences weren't necessarily interpersonally connected Mm. so that was another feature that made it more complicated right so you're you're thinking about that so no one is actually personally accountable for any of this violence you know as far as we know so you've got that issue led on top so we can't then go portray these men as domestic abusers and violent and whatever else we had to find a way of balancing that without completely minimizing or eliminating because i know when those women when i interviewed those women they saw me as a man going into that space and they would wanted me wanted to tell me these things so i could go out and say it as a man so a man would have to come out and say what they were telling me Mm -hmm. and i understand that you know what i mean so i couldn't also back down from that responsibility so we had to navigate that very carefully and to be honest we tried a thing and hopefully it'll open up a conversation. Well, we've done a thing personally. Yeah, we did, yeah do you get me? <laughs> but in life, all you can do is try a thing or do a thing. You get yeah. me? Like, that's what I think. Yeah. And um, I hope that that will open up a little pocket of space that we have a bit of leverage that we are coming from these communities. Yeah. And I'll open up a pocket of space where we can talk in a more nuanced and informed way, not just because I understand male-perpetrated violence is massive and it's hugely harmful across our society people are dying as a result of this men and women right for all different reasons all different circumstances and we shouldn't back away from that but we also need to think think in ways that we understand how these processes are working and how groups you know across the gender binaries are being pinned and persecuted as a result of it yeah i think that's really important and i think that um and then people go and read the chapter when it's out in when I September. I was going to ask because I've not read the chapter mm. fully. I've kind of had conversations with Yusuf about it. But if you could summarize for your listeners mm-hmm. what the actual chapter is about, you're kind of talking about it, and so yeah, yeah, yeah. so, and, and it's nice to hear the kind of 
process between mm-hmm. the two of you actually writing and what that experience meant Go on, chapter you about so the concept was tainted love which is also a song from the 80s or 90s or I don't know it was like before my time I don't remember it well not completely uh, I was going to say anyway. 80s so. <laughs> anyway, anyway anyway um and the idea of tainted love was basically locating love in the context of its social environment, you know, in, in where it is. And like love cannot function free from the constraint or the influence of the social location it's in. And that's what it was about. Yeah. It was about the ways in which, you know, why we fought those forms of masculinity were particularly salient in those places. We talked about like concepts like heterosexist eroticism which was the ways in which women were buying into and the reasons why we thought some of the reasons why we thought women were buying into also those forms of masculinity and then also what the consequences of those were for perpetuating further violence and essentially what was i think was at the heart of it is the way that violence kind of runs through the core of our society and violence even imbues love and there's like a bit in the article we talk about violence holding the space for love but violence is inadequate as a thing holding the space for love because we talked about people need to cultivate a degree of violence to create enough of a safe space in a violent environment for love to kind of flower and just to put just again to cone in a little even more specifically and how what that looks like on road yeah. so like all of those things and i think that 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 um doing an analysis of that could be done in every community but what we spoke about um what we chose to spoke about was what that looks like on road um and there are that very specific ways that it manifests and and just to say violence the kind of conclusion we had is violence is inadequate for holding space for love because once you cultivate violence it's difficult to contain Mm -hmm. and it's difficult to direct and it's messy so therefore, they're almost antagonistic concepts is that love and violence find it hard to cohabit. And I think that is, like you, I mean, you, you did say it before, that I think that is also a, a conclusion that Bahooks actually arrives to. So when we talk about her, th- her theoretical concepts being around ideas that we can aspire to, I think that's she's effectively arguing that um, there isn't, you cannot... You cannot claim a kind of love that is dependent on violence. It's, I don't think the argument is about you can't, um, you can't as a as a person um, experience love if it's if you've been a victim of violence. It's much more about that if if we can't claim it as love, and as mm. you can't claim that as being love, and you can't claim the violence i guess if you think about it from a interpersonal relationship perspective a lot of there's you know the discussions around um you know tough love or you know this which in and of itself is says it it's what it says on the tin yeah. isn't it <laughs> and it's sort of like well if that yeah it's if you've got this notion of parenting you know the role of mothers as parents and that um actually mothers can can perpetuate certain forms of violence because they occupy a dominant position within families, and that 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 role can be become a, a kind of position around um, 
taking advantage of that of the power that they may have in a, in in a situation where they themselves are actually powerless. And I think there's a sense in which there's she wasn't necessarily I don't think Bell Hooks was necessarily trying to to say any of us are immune or outside of the problems that we're situated within. Um, particularly when it comes to issues around like thinking about patriarchy, thinking about sexism, thinking about racism, um, that p part of her thinking was that these are the social conditions of the world. These are the ways in which the, 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 her, the, fact, the most notable terminology that we associate with bell hooks is imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. And she's naming the structures that govern our existence. Probably add heteronormative to it as well. We could, yeah, and we could, and we could add keep going, keep and going. going. And I think that that there's that perspective around, um, you know, looking at black feminist discourse and the ways in which it gets collapsed into really sort of simplistic ideas about well, it's just black feminism. Actually, there's lots of different ideas that are circulated within black feminism that don't always speak to the same political agenda. And I think even if we sort of look at Bell Hooks is naming of white supremacist capitalist patriarchy and the kind of um, overuse of, of um, and sometimes misuse of the, um, the the framework of intersectionality they get put into the same yeah. bracket and they're doing different things they're doing very different very things different they're naming things. they're naming power structures they're naming um, but I think what, what the formulation that Bell Hooks has given us allows us to say that these these are the ideas this is the epistemic space in which we live these are the ideas that we participate within these are the frame this is the frame of reference that our lives are structured within and so therefore again it goes back to that is that's we should be pointing our lens at the pathology of that mm -hmm. frame of reference and in in a sense, um, we, we, as you said, Yusuf, it's messy. We are part of. We do. We do become um, part of the structure in in of itself, and ways in which we can perpetuate those ideas, or even if we're not really willingly doing so. And so, the, you you was talking about the ways in which um, the young women that you were interviewing may have had certain ideas about black masculinity. It's, they might not have generated those ideas, but it's they're, but they're limit, the limitations around what black masculinity um, constitutes, what it means, what it represents. There's a lot of work to do, again, to unravel a lot of that, that decolonizing work that um, Hooks refers to is about, well, what do we, you know, how are we talking about black masculinity in these kind of really constrained forms? And then what does it do to, to then render some of those ideas as a, as, as a place to protect ourselves. Because I think what you were saying, that the, the, women, the young women wanted to engage with a kind of black masculinity that would allow them to feel safe or protected. Um, I'll, even, I'll even broaden that out to masculinity on road, um, yeah. which I think makes it even broader. Um, and I think that um, my experience of engaging with that data, it was really interesting because there's also something about and I want to touch on very quickly, and then Lisa, I want to hear more from you about your research and love in the context of your research. But um, there was also something about being 
the person that I am doing writing and working with you in that way so there was something about what what it did to me what it did for me on a on a very personal and embodied way what it did for me engaging with that data which I didn't collect but have like in saw my story in in so many ways and me the whole time I was doing like a long part of it I met you sort of mid to end PhD so it would have been around the time just after and I was just trying to wrap my head around it yeah we've had no we've had had, exactly we've had exactly that and we've like we've been and I feel like the conversation and it it is it's that line that I guess that I want to highlight here that line between like lived living experience and like this work um and where I stop and it starts um, and also if I was writing, because like I said, my process with this particular piece was very like, I can be present and then I can't, and I can be present and then I can't. But if I was writing about, I don't know. Something more. Something else. If I was writing about the te- te- impact of teletubbies in primary schools in yeah, the 90s, yeah, yeah. would that have been my process? I don't know. And I don't yeah, know is the answer. But it's also like thinking through how are we holding space for that? Um, in for those of us that are researching and theorizing around this stuff that are from those communities, what does it look like to offer ourselves that space and grace can, to really do that? Can I just enter a little interlude? Like it's an interrelated concept, mm. which is something that we've been doing work on at the center of hope. And I think there were different things. And another thing, that's another thing where I think. Not where we departed from Bell Hooks. I think Bell Hooks work in the end is one of the things that gave us hope. Yep. But that process gave us hope. But also, even within those narratives that were so, and sometimes hard to look at, you know, because it was literally people talking about the burden of the various forms of structural violence landing in the most intimate part of their life. And I do think that kernel of intimate life can tell you a lot you know it's not always appropriate to go delving into it but when it opens up it tells you a lot and um i think even so the outcome you know the the generative ideas about love but also that even in those settings there was a sense that love still persists you know even in the context of violence and that's why we called it tainted i think because it might not be the most generative and you know fruitful form of love but there was still a sense that the flicker was there Mm -hmm. and it was trying to persist and even amongst all the harmful and awful outcomes there were some flickers of something a bit brighter and the fact it tries to persist even in the most marginal places and the most difficult places you know what's that Tupac poetry book called the rose that grew from the concrete I know it's a bit of a tired analogy now but is a bit like that and it? it's a bit like even in troubling times you know you can see a flicker of hope. that's like what we had i'll talk about hopeful futures quickly so we did a, a creative challenge at the center and lisa kind of set this idea of hopeful futures as the, the theme and there's this one piece that was a picture of a tortoise eating a strawberry and the tag said Hope is as sweet as a strawberry. Best feeling on a summer day when we're out of our friends or our family. Our, you know, the best feeling we can have is the feeling that tortoise has as it's closing its mouth around that strawberry. Mm-hmm. And when we had all those kids coming in and they were engaged completely with the Lawrence legacy and they were saying anti-racist things and they were being, you know, inclusive things and 
they they had bought into it. They were a part of it in mm. a way. Stephen's mom said that, um, Baroness Lawrence said that after the memorial that Stephen belongs to her first and foremost, but also belongs a little bit to everyone. And I think that legacy lifted those children a little bit and it lifted us because to see that, that's why the hope, the tortoise kind of encapsulated the, the whole collection for me because it reminded me that inclusivity, anti-racism, love, they offer more. They offer more. They offer the best feeling we can have if we remember what they are. Do you know what I mean? Fundamentally, we don't get bogged down in, oh, I'm telling you, you can't say this. And you're like, you know, these interpersonal conflicts, these identity politic conflicts, which recognizing difference is important, but also offering solidarity is the other hand. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So finding the way towards that and love and hope, I think, are interconnected. And they can give us the absolute most joyous feeling and experience that it's almost possible to experience, right? And I felt a little bit of that on that day at that exhibition, seeing those kids light up, looking at their work and the, the stories it was telling and stuff like that. And I just wanted to say away, in a way, like, you know, even in hard times, those little flickers, you have to capture those and remember those because they're the thing that's going to lift us. And we have to remember that the thing we're working towards can offer more. Mm. Yeah, that's deep and beautiful, and I couldn't agree more. Um, Lisa, can you tell us a little bit about the role that love has played in terms of like your research and your work, the work love that you do? Rock. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I started to think of, about Lovers Rock when I was doing my PhD back many moons ago, and um, I was engaging in looking at the ways in which um, love and the, and the, I guess looking deeply into Bell Hooks' idea about loving blackness but I wanted to think about it from a, a, a kind of black British experience and so I, would, I was doing lots of work in, with using other different examples about um, the, the kind of politics of love and why, why it's quite it can be a slippery and dangerous com concept as well as one that's affirming and um, a, a can form a kind of groundation for a certain type of politics. So I came to Lover's Rock. I thought I, I could actually do something about thinking through the politics of love within this, this particular genre. And it, when I started to do the research, I realised that there wasn't that much written on Lover's Rock at all at the time. There was very little social commentary. There's a few articles. Um, a cultural theorist called Dick Hebditch in his book, Cotter Mix, he'd written a, a, a bit about it. There was a kind of um, couple of um, articles in Black Echoes magazine, which was kind of out in the 1980s, looking at black music. There's a few articles about that, and there was one in The Face magazine as well. It was published by um, a, a journalist called Cheryl Garrett from, from 1985. And there really wasn't a much discourse, but what was written tended to be about um, the role of the producers or the role of Lovers Rap being this romantic form of reggae that women allowed women an entry point into reggae music. And... I kind of it troubled me because I was thinking, well, as a young girl growing up in Birmingham, 
um, reggae the reggae music scene is defines what it meant to be or defined what it meant to be black in Birmingham at that particular time. Sound system culture, um, pirate radio station, and a very Jamaican orientated idea of a of black Britishness is kind of it's 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 changing now. But during that period, that was the kind of um, I guess the hegemonic notion of, of being black within that particular city, and so it felt to me that there was something missing in that analysis, that there was a sense in which there was talking about women entering into the scene only through lovers' rap music, which, don't get me wrong, a, a whole lot of women include, and I talk about it in the first piece that I wrote, my cousins, when we were growing up, when we'd go out and rave, they'd love a lover's dance. Like, that was their thing. That was what they was turning up for. They wanted to, to have the, the dance. They wanted to, and the, I mean, the physical dance, because, you know, it's like a rubber dubbed dance session they wanted to hear all the latest lovers rock tunes and they knew the, the words and the lyrics and i was like you know what i'm not really feeling it too tough but it, this is what they were raving to and i was the, always the one that was like the the dry one they would say <laughs> <laughs> and so i think that during that period um and that the dryness came from the fact that when um i was growing up my my dad was a rastafarian was a rastafari growing up um, and Rastafari was the thing that defined my childhood along with other forms of kind of Christianity as well but it was kind of that was giving that gave me a grounding into black political thought and so I used to listen to Roots and Culture all the time so that's where I got my political awareness so that Roots and Culture was like a history lesson constant history lesson constant discourse around kind of anti-imperialist struggle through reggae music and so for me looking at Lovers Rap felt a bit unusual because I didn't actually really appreciate it as much as perhaps I knew my other cousins did but actually revisiting and look re reconnecting with the music and then having this kind of black feminist lens to 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 reconsider what the genre was actually doing just gave me a different set of questions to ask one of the questions the key questions for me was about how was lovers rap being how was the history of lovers rap being narrated and whose voices were going to be at the center of that politics and oftentimes it was narrated like i said through the producers through male artists through the sound system or the um the the role of a lot of um men within the industry and so the, the women just became these kind of sidelined people that just come in and out of the, of the scene, the people who controlled the scene were the producers, were the people in charge of the sound system. And so the women themselves, in the way they were being written about as well, in those few places that were talking about their contribution, it just felt off to me. And I think there wasn't a kind of consideration of the gender politics, and that's what I wanted to consider. And the broader question really, what, I was, what I'm trying to do with the work on Lovers Rock is to ask some of the questions that you both were talking about in your um, in your chapter, which is to think through, okay, so you've got this politics where Lovers Rock is seen as apolitical, largely because it's dealing with love and largely because it's the women who, who are actually doing the performance um, around these, these tracks. If you talk to people about 
Lovers Rock and, and the kind of key performers of that period. They will name a lot of the male artists, there's no doubt about it, but the predominant artists that people remember are the, a lot of the female artists who do, did not get the credit that they deserve. They get, they're kind of getting some recognition now, but they didn't really get the credit at the time. And I think that, for me, was a political issue, and that was what was being left out of the analysis. And there wasn't really an analysis of gender, of the gender dynamics, of the politics of sexuality, of the ways in which, you know, black women were singing about a complex set of issues. They weren't they were singing about romantic love, um, in a typical kind of pop pop yeah. sensation type of way. But they were also engaged and singing using lovers rock as a style and as a genre as a form to actually talk to a a complex set of issues that involved the ways in which love moved through their lives from the romantic space to the public space mm. so you had like conscious lovers rock and conscious lovers rock with artists such as um um brown sugar talking about black pride or um you know 15 16 17 singing about black skin boys and that's who they desired as um as their partners there was a very explicit political awareness of of their social condition um of the ways in which they had to practice their love in a particular way at that time but also it was what i i drew on some of stuart hall's work um, in policing the crisis, when he talks about the colony society, and I guess, and I think we're also talking about that a bit now. That there's a sense in which we are still living through mm-hmm. a model of a of a colony society, mm-hmm. and still negotiating those spaces where we can live, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we're not defining our reality against the the terms of of the of the coloniality of our existence, and I think lovers rock gave me a, a kind of way to, to 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 name the spaces of pleasure intimacy to, to to say love is actually quite a normal thing to happen in these spaces it's not a arbitrary um love loveless space but i think there is a politics of lovelessness that comes with coloniality that's that, that's really what i'm trying to argue and i think with that You've also have the um, black feminism allowed me to sort of say that I use um, Patricia Hill Collins and she talks about um, you know loving if you choose to love uh, um, loving black people is a is a radical act and she wasn't just talking about sexuality she's talking about the kind of again thinking about more broadly about what it means to to think about black people in ways that move beyond the dominant discourse around us being abject, around us being um, somehow um, deviant, um, particularly when it comes to sexuality. So it, it was doing a, I was do I was doing a lot of thinking, a lot of um, I'm still trying to write my book mm-hmm. <laughs> in the process. It's been the longest book journey writing or the longest writing journey ever, but it's it's um, yeah. I won't say much more about that. You know, what's interesting listening to that is that thing that initially turned you away from Lovers Rock is perhaps the lack of consciousness. 
but then you went and found it <laughs> in the music <laughs> afterwards. Like you went and looked at it again and were like, no way, it's there. But it just was hiding in plain sight because of the language of love, which is interesting. And that's that I think really summarizes like that love is there, isn't it? It's always there. I think and it's it, and it is I think when and I think about political. and it is political and it's like if you search for it and if you um and when I say search for it, I spoke about this on one of the episodes, I think, I hope. Um, but something about that searching for it within. Um, so in the process of researching, writing, theorising, working with, working in community, in the process of doing that, I think I've had to, like, I spoke on the first episode in this series about, like, my relationship with anger and how anger as a tool to understanding myself society love and like the relationship between those two things and like it is an ongoing question where where is the love in this space um and if the love isn't in this space how do i embody that how do i bring it to this space who do i need to work with how do we need to work um but if we're not asking the questions about love then i I, to me it's wild that it's wild that we are um suggesting that we're doing work for people without naming um the need for love and without naming the need to be intentional about how we do love um, or how we search for love. So this thing's going on or this thing's being spoken about and I, it's erased this community of people. Like, what's the love in that? Um, I'm going to go and look for it. I'm going to research it. And and again, like, I'm empathising with you about the book taking longer. <laughs> and I'm not even going to, if you're anything like me, it's not space or time for that conversation. <laughs> but what I will say is giving yourself the care and the grace that, actually being from working through our stuff if you're working through someone else's stuff i can work through someone else's stuff all day long like if you ask if you give me a list of things to write about i, I can write about washing machines i can write about <laughs> that i can i can and like i can write about all sorts yeah but if you're asking me to live breathe and then communicate what I am living and breathing and not just me, but what I have been living and breathing, what my ancestors have been living and breathing, what I am seeing happening in my community and how all of those things are interconnected, I'm going to need some time. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to need a bit of time. I appreciate so, that, yeah, so. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah. But I'm trying to do a lot. Of, um, and again, I think it's also that thing about the the it's partly trying to address what was going on with the labour of the women? Like they were work. These were singers, the performers, artists. Yeah, the artists. So like, this is their labour. This is their thing. This is how they had to earn. They're still out here trying to earn a living mm-hmm. now, um, and having to do the graft mm-hmm. now. Like thirty, forty, fifty years. I'm from the period in which that this the genre was actually formed, mm-hmm. and I think that is also speaks to. A, go back to the, the same thing again like there is a certain so- social condition that exists around the laboring lives of of, of of people in general but black women in particular mm-hmm. that is about you know a juggle and a hustle it, it's a it's a, it's always about juggling it's always about hustling because that juggling and hustling um it, there's an expectation around certain forms of labor that black women are expected to perform Mm -hmm. and and that's it's it's a it's a it's not just a kind of identity politics kind of analysis it's it's about it's a very situated material material condition Mm -hmm. um it's a it's about 
it's about labor who, who gets paid to do work and who doesn't you know it's about who who's how much somebody's going to get paid to do the work mm-hmm. those are the questions like and it, in the context that you're talking about you're speaking specifically about black women in this very specific context mm. but to those listening i think it's about looking at what what are the questions you need to be asking in your context of work or in your context of research? What who yeah, what are the questions you need to be asking about love? Um okay, so we're gonna wrap up here, but would like to wrap up with the question that I've been asking everybody that has come on, um, which is what is the role of love in social justice work, if you were to answer that? I think we've talked about all different ways of giving hope, giving joy carrying us through i always think about the lawrence case because obviously i've read a lot since i've been at the slrc about the lawrence case and i believe that the love for a son the love for a brother was the art towards justice in a world you know that wasn't offering us justice and love carried that it didn't necessarily succeed because you know totally because of what we've been talking about here but in the most hateful circumstances, love was the thing that carried it, or part of what carried it. Definitely, it was the the spark or the light, you know, that that moved it forward, and all, like brought something like justice in the so- social conditions that we live in. And I think that's what it is: is that if we want that light to be brighter, we have to cultivate the conditions for it to shine. And that's probably what I would say as a kind of loose maybe a bit cringy metaphor but that's probably from doing the sociology of love work that kind of we've been doing and it also helps me to think about sometimes when I'm short of it that the conditions that I'm trying to cultivate need to be there for me to be able to find that and see it again so that's probably what I'll say thank you Lisa I think the role of love in social justice work really requires from all of us um, that we are accountable. I think there's a level of accountability that it, if you do, if you're thinking about a ethic of love, I think it requires it's hard work, and it's it's not just um, it isn't just about all of the the feelings of love that we desire. It's also about that the practice of love. Um, that requires a lot more of us, a lot more of us, in a sense that if we if we want to think about and cultivate the ethic, it's it's it means that we it's it can be a quite a painful process. It can require a certain level of giving up of something, um, a kind of sacrifice of either your time, definitely your energy. And so a certain sense of um, retaining some of who you are, because I don't, I think that is also important. But it's also how do you make space for, for other people in that in in your world that may you may you do have conflicts with like that. That's the thing. Like love is not this sort of. I don't see it as this sort of har- harmonious disposition or or plane that we arrive to it's actually quite a, it's the stuff that we do when things get messy and what happens when things get messy what do we draw on what where do we go 
what do we revert to and and that's that, i think that's where the failings are that's where we always f- fail <laughs> in terms of love because it's a lot easier to revert back to doing something that where we feel a bit more comfortable see it pushes us into a zone or a, a space of where things become uncomfortable in the hope that we get to that that other side and that's why i think where the hope comes in is mm. in the hope that we get to the other side that we can actually work through those those kind of sticky situations and we can't always demand of love to be generative we have to give it the possibility to be generative because love can take us like we said that we started a conversation saying that love can take us a lot of places and not all of them are great places like the little you know the little mermaid <laughs> but um <laughs> do you know what i mean it, we have to try to do the work and part of that we have to fail Mm. Sometimes mm-hmm. and find ways to find it again. Mm. And that's, that's probably what I've finished. What I want to say. Cool. Thank you both for coming on, um, and thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening to Surviving Society. To support our work, you can rate, review, and subscribe to host or produce a series of Surviving Society. Get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram.